And throughout each week, we've been dancing around one final theme that First Peter has been wrestling with. And we've touched on it almost every week that we've come together, this idea of persecution, this idea of oppression, this idea that we are beset on all sides by the danger and the evil of the world. And in fact, persecution is most likely why this letter was written in the first place. It's most likely why these people were suffering and going through the things they were. And so I'm gonna read the close to this letter. We're gonna read a few verses in chapter four and then we'll read in chapter five to finish up. It, it says this, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Jumping ahead to chapter five, verse six. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The glory, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. That's the close of his letter. And then he goes on to say, oh, by the way, uh, Sylvanius helped me write this thing, but I definitely um, uh, approve this message. And so when we look at the close of this, when we look at the end of this letter, this is the last thing that Peter wants to tell his believers, the people in Asia Minor, that I understand you are being persecuted. I understand that it's difficult sometimes to be a Christian. I understand that it's difficult to live in the world. We are frail humans. We are beset on all sides by things that want our attention. And so I wanna tell you today that persecution is going to happen. There's no way around it. The first century church was wrestling with a really hard question around all of this. If God has won the victory through Christ's resurrection, then why is there so much evil, persecution, and suffering still in the world? Now, this is a question we can wrestle with in our own sense, in our own ways, in our own desires, in our own world that we live in. Why do we see bad things happening? We've touched on that so many times. But this is a question that is very particular to this time and place in the first century. That if Christ is who he says he is, if God is who he says he is, if the resurrection is true and we as Christians living out our existence in the middle of this oppressive empire of Rome, if all of this is happening still, it's hard for us to see that this is true, that this is life, that this is going on, that this is happening. 
So maybe we ought to start living like the Romans do. Maybe we ought to start living that way because it seems like their way of life is easier. And wouldn't it be easier for us as people if we just didn't have to be persecuted? Couldn't we just serve God in another way? Couldn't we follow the way of Christ in another way? That if his suffering is meant for us as well, how can we come through on the other side of this? So Peter just starts out, don't be surprised at your fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised. Don't act confused when this is gonna happen to you. Don't act as if you're going through something that is completely foreign to you because your savior, Jesus Christ, was oppressed and suffered on the cross. So what makes you think that you won't go through the same fiery ordeal that he is doing? Because we know to live the gospel is threatening. To live a life as a Christian is threatening to the world around us. It threatens the very life of the empire. Jesus said in Luke, preach good news to the poor, freedom to the imprisoned, sight for the blind, liberation to the oppressed. And he was just quoting Isaiah. And even when he stood in front of the temple and quoted Isaiah and said, this is I, this is me who has come to do this, to liberate the oppressed, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. So what chance do we stand What chance do we have that when we stand up here on Sundays and when we take this message of good news Monday through Saturday to the world around us and we take it to our neighbors and we try and affect the world that we live in, when we preach good news to the poor and we want to free the imprisoned and we want to give sight to the blind and we want to liberate the oppressed, what chance do we have if our Savior was going to be thrown off a cliff at that moment? But see, liberation of the oppressed is a direct assault on the empire. It seeks to undo all of the institutions of society that keep us all in check, that keep us all in ordered form, that create a a system of those who are out and those who are in and those who are bad and those who are good. The dismantling of an empire takes those things piece by piece and says we no longer recognize them. We don't want them. But see, the threat was not that this group of Christians believed Jesus was the Son of God and rose from the dead. The threat to the empire was not even so much what they were saying, but it was what they were doing. They were calling Jesus Lord, which was a title only reserved for Caesar. So when you are a Caesar, when you have subjects that are inside your realm that are are being called by your title, there's too many lords here. There's too many kings. There's too many people who think they have power. It's a very threat to your kingdom. And Jesus never called himself Lord. There were people, remember he stood in front of Pilate and said, you have said it so. Who did you hear that from? It wasn't me who told you that. Jesus came and stood in front of Pilate and Pilate wanted to know the truth and there he was, but Pilate had an obligation to follow through because here was a man who was being called Lord by his followers and you can't have other followers calling someone else Lord when there is only one Lord and that is Caesar. 
those little lords that wander around, they must be destroyed. They must be killed. You have no authority if you aren't a lord. And worse yet, there were people pledging allegiance to Jesus, pledging their desire to follow him and love him and trust him and trust the father that he came to represent. And in fact, they were so, um, they were so faithful to him that they took these words of gratitude and kindness and joy and spread them through the country, saying that Christ has come. Jesus is Lord. No, 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 we cannot have this in our own backyard. We cannot have this within the gates of our empire. Caesar is Lord and Lord alone. You only pledge allegiance to Caesar. You pledge allegiance to Rome. You pledge allegiance to your country. You don't pledge allegiance to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you step in line with the rest of the people around you. Suffering is the norm for a vast majority of the world's population. And even still today, we hear stories like the great Corey Ten Boom, who was a Dutch Christian in Nazi-occupied Netherlands in the 40s. And in 1942, when a Jewish woman knocked on her family's door, they were watchmakers in uh, Netherlands. They immediately agreed to hide her. And from May of 1942 to February of 1944, the whole Ten Booms family hid hundreds of Jewish families trying to flee Nazi-occupied Netherlands. And with the help of the underground church and the Dutch resistance, hundreds found safe passage out of the country as well as necessary food and supplies. But the Ten Booms did not share that fate. The police found out about their operation and arrested everyone, including 30 Jews who were living in their house at the time of their arrests. Corey was held in prison with her sister Betsy and her father Casper. Casper, her father, died 10 days later. Eventually, Corey and Betsy were transferred to the women's labor camp called Ravensbrück, the concentration camp known as So Deadly. There they held worship services after a hard day at work using a Bible they had managed to smuggle in. And through their teachings and examples of unfailing charity, many of the prisoners living in their same bunkhouse were converted to Christianity. Betsy, her sister, died December 1944, and Corey was released from the camp just 12 days later. Corey later found out that it was at the end of that week that all the women from her prison block and her age group, those living in her space that she had worked with for months, those that had become Christians were sent to the gas chamber. She would have been among them. She wasn't supposed to have been released and lived to teach and spread the gospel throughout the world. But a clerical error was responsible for her release. Now, God has lots of names. Clerical error might be one of them. We hear stories about the great Lutheran pastor, Richard Vermbrand from Romania, who fought back against the communist government of the Soviet Union by preaching the gospel in underground churches. 
Romania's official stance as a government was atheism. And so any attempt to undermine the position of the official government resulted in prison time and torture. Fernbrand was arrested at least twice and served in prison for a combined 14 years out of a 25-year sentence, all the while being tortured and mocked for his religion. For three of those years, he was in solitary confinement, a cell that was so small he could not stand up in it or lay down to sleep. It was 12 feet underground. It had no windows and no light. He was driven almost to the brink of insanity because of the silence. And in fact, the guards that watched these cells wore felt slippers so they could hear no sound from the outside. He communicated with other inmates that are around him in Morse code. And it's estimated that he tapped out around 350 sermons to those around him. And when he was finally released in 1964, he remembered all of them. He became the image bearer of the Voice of the Martyrs organization, raising money and awareness for every imprisoned Christian across the globe. But we have a problem. We have a bit of a disconnect because we can hear stories like that and they are uplifting and they are so, so good to hear. But there is something going on in our hearts and our minds because we think those are stories of another time and another place. We Christians in America who are guaranteed to be free from religious persecution don't have to give up the right to worship Jesus day to day. We're not in a place where we're tortured to the bone like Wormwerner. We're not in a place where we have to give up the rights to society around us because of who we follow and who we believe in. We're not in a place that we believe in Christ and it puts us under the threat of the government every day. And all of this begs the question then, is this passage relevant to us? If we look at this and we read this and we see what the church is going through in the first century and we say that's terrible, the church doesn't go through that now here in America, in our setting, what we believe and do here. Is this text only speaking to those people who have been oppressed, beaten, or expelled for their faith? If the answer is no, then we don't need to go any further. We just rip these pages right out of our Bible and say, that's it. That was for another time and another place. But I think the answer is yes. I think this passage is relevant to us. It still bears relevancy in our lives today. Despite not having to go through the torture some experience, First Peter includes a detail that we often miss. And it brings everything into focus in our lives. In verse nine, he writes, the same kind of suffering being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. You see, as Christians, we're not flying solo. Christianity is not an individualistic faith. At its core, Christianity invites people to become part of one body of Christ which is larger than the troubles, the successes, or frustrations of any one person. That when the church in the first century suffers, we suffer. When 
People suffer in Nazi-occupied countries and communist-occupied countries. We suffer as well. That we can go from day to day and we think that the church is not under threat. But here is the wake up for us. If we belong to the church, all of us are under threat. That we cannot separate what we do here in this community. We cannot separate the things that happen at all of the churches, 20 or so churches here in the Fenton area that are doing the same thing we're doing We cannot separate it from the churches across America. We cannot separate it from the churches of Zimbabwe. We cannot separate it from the churches in Africa, in the heart of deep Africa, where they worship in public with one another, listening for God, and the trucks with the AK-47 show up, and everyone is murdered. We cannot separate that from this. That is not another time and another place. This is Christ's body that we together collectively belong to. So if one Christian suffers, if one Christian is oppressed, if one Christian is persecuted for their beliefs, we share in that. John Donne wrote, no man is an island entirely of himself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And you know what's interesting is in February of 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. took that quote from John Donne and he was murdered three months later. The point being that we do not exist merely for our own needs. The gospel enrages people. It forces them to look at who they are and where they are, and it sets empires on their back feet. We do not exist merely for our own needs. In fact, earlier in chapter four, Peter writes this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We cannot love each other deeply if we do not understand that we are connected to this bigger body, the body of the living. The body lives on. It does not fade, it does not grow weary, it does not shake and tremble at the things of this earth. And so with regard to this particular text, it helps to note that perhaps the greatest form of violence the devil can render is to separate people from one another, to put us in our little silos. That when we get home at night, we shut our doors and we lock our windows and we say, that was it. I had a good day, now I'm safe in my house. And we wake up the next morning and we drive in our bubbles and we get to the office and that's the end. The greatest thing, the greatest form of violence that the devil can give us is to separate people from one another. For people to forget or abandon this notion of our connectedality, of being united with all Christians around the world in our struggles, triumphs, joys, and fears. He writes in verse eight, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And we think of the image of a tree, we think of this idea of a tree standing so strongly, and the branches connected to it, swaying in the wind. That one little twig is not gonna stand up to hurricane force winds, but together that tree is rooted 
And when it is battered down on all sides by wind and rain, by thunder and lightning, whatever the earth can throw at it, it is through this struggle, it is through this violence that it can show how strong it really is. The church stands through oppression, it stands through persecution, it stands through violence, it stands through empire after government after nation. And it shows how strong it really is through all of that. Because the body of Christ is strong. Until we forget that we're all working together, that we're all on the same team, that love can conquer so many sins, cover a multitude of sins, that we don't have to walk around so angry at each other. Because what can love do for us? It is imperative that the differences that exist between Christians not be allowed to sever our connections that we have and that this text urges us never to abandon. And such an awareness is essential to our ability to relate to others and the needs they have or particular troubles that they face. It opens our ears to the world around us it gets us to stop for just a second and say, you know what? I have a lot of hope in my life because I'm a white American Christian living in a time and place where I am not mercilessly persecuted for my faith. But let me just for a second step outside of my world, step outside of my walls, step outside of my bubble and listen to the stories of people around me. That Peter is urging a church and saying, I get that you're being persecuted and it is terrible, but listen to me when I tell you that everyone is going through it. You are not alone when you face struggles. You are not alone when violence comes at you. You are not alone when the world wants to tear you down. And so Peter says it, you know, nonchalantly. Casting it aside, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. That's an easy thing to say. But the reason we can do that, the reason we can take off of these burdens, the reason we can shred these things that we're holding back, the bondage of sin, the bondage of violence, the bondage of making this world an idol, making the government an idol, making the things that are going to fail an idol, is that the church never falls. And we're all in this together. So go ahead, cast your anxieties on him because everyone is going through this. You think that you're the only person who's ever been depressed. You think you're the only person who's ever had anxiety. You think that you are the only person to share in these things that are tearing you down. This is Christianity. This is the life of the church to come alongside of you and say, you've got this because we've got Christ. And no matter what happens, no matter who you are, you are Christ's. And if you truly believe he is Lord, if you believe he is ruling his kingdom and his empire, live in such a way. Our ability to empathize, to achieve solidarity with one another, and to find common ground ultimately stems from an understanding of one's self as part of a larger whole. We are just a small part of this. I am just but a humble man in a time, in a place, 
who's joining the mission that has already been established. Not my own mission, but the mission that God has already. And what the church has done for 2,000 odd years, I'm just but a small piece to play in all of that. I wanna finish this morning with this one question. Because if all of this is true, if all of this persecution comes from what we've preached and lived out through the gospel, if we've brought the good news to empires, if we've brought the good news to people, liberating them from their oppression and their bonds of sin, why doesn't it offend anymore? I think it's because the church has fallen behind. The church is not in the forefront of these discussions any longer. The church is on the back burner in the conversation that goes on. Why doesn't the gospel offend? Because we've given so much ground to the world around us. Could it be that today's church has become irrelevant because it has traded the gospel message of liberation for conformity and complicity? That we've slid so far back into ourselves that we no longer wanna get out in front of this. That we just wanna have a place on the edges of society. We wanna have a place on the edge of religion. We wanna have a place on the edge of what we're saying in the conversations that go on in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. We just wanna be another pundit. We just wanna have another opinion about the way things are. I think it's this way. Well, yeah, you think that because you're a Christian. I think that way because God is who he is. I believe the things that I believe because God is true and informs my worldview. And these things will fall and they will crumble away. And as the church has grown, it's grown really comfortable with the culture around it. And we as churches have failed to offend the people around us. We've failed to feel persecuted any longer for our beliefs because our beliefs look more like conformity to the world around us now. That the Jesus I hear about out in the mainstream, the Jesus that I see walking down the street in people's hearts is not the Jesus that I read about here in the Bible. This Jesus who has come, who was going to be thrown off a cliff, who was stoned and who was lifted up on a tree to die in humiliation. He offended people but we've ceded ground to the world around us. If today's churches were, a play, were to place less emphasis on our correct beliefs and more on our correct action, would their efforts to bring about justice provoke persecution? Are we doing things or are we just saying things? Are we living out our gospel that we believe that Jesus is Lord, or is it just another opinion that doesn't matter to other people?